two, one. Hello and welcome everyone to the No Outlet Podcast. Folks, it's another first on the No Outlet Podcast. The very first doctor. That's right. We have an actual doctor on the show tonight. Uh, this guy is truly one of a kind. He is the author of a book that I highly recommend. It's called Boxer, Bouncer, and Now a Doctor, which chronicles his ongoing life adventure from the mean streets of Burnley to learning how to defend himself and becoming a boxer, fighter, to the out-of-this-world nightlife scene in Australia, all the way back to the educational system in Great Britain where he went on to earn a doctorate. Oh, and did I also mention that he's a very successful real estate investor as well? Uh, easily one of the most interesting people that I've ever had on the show. Uh, please help me give a warm welcome to Dr. Jeff Slater. Hey, Jeff. How are Thank you? you. Yes. Thank you I'm so much. I'm great. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for being on the show. We're going to play a game called 20 Questions, and it always starts the same place, and that's question number one. Question number one. Do you believe in UFOs and aliens? No. <laughs> I, like, I like that brevity of, of the answer. Um, a- any particular reason why or just you haven't seen proof, so that's enough? Yeah, I'm very much a pragmatist. What I don't see, smell, hear, or taste, I don't believe in it. Yep. Well, you know, it's it's funny. My girlfriend is the exact same way. She's like, if I don't know it's real, it's not real. Um, so I understand that answer. All right, question number two. Um, I loved your book, like I said. You've had so many great adventures, and you've been around some wild people and some wild places. Of all of the bars and pubs that you've been to in your life, what is the most dangerous place? Australia. Was the most dangerous place. Okay. Was that because of the, the patrons that went to the establishments, or was it more about the uh, the owners of the establishments, or maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, it was quite unique in the sense that in 1970s, Australia, particularly Western Australia, mm-hmm. was quite underdeveloped, and there uh, was not much of a we would call a working class culture. It was mainly men who worked in the mines and the gold fields would come and descend on the discos and bars in Perth, in Western Australia, mm-hmm. after working long shifts, and they became violent. There were very few women in the bars. Mm. It was mostly men, and they got drunk, and it was particularly violent. Oh, boy. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a nice relaxing evening out to get a, a espresso martini. <laughs> Sounds like no. <laughs> you got to be ready for some action there. Uh, again, I, I couldn't recommend the book more. I think it's it's so cool for so many reasons. Um, you know, it, it's the story of somebody who is always willing to work hard, which I really appreciate. And you know, anybody who appreciates a good story would love your would lo- love your story in your book. And, you know, I think one of the most impressive, you know, things about it is that you identified early, okay, I've got to change my physical strength. And, and you made those changes to cope with, you know, being bullied and beat up and, and running into those types of situations. But then you also realized, and I felt like this was one of the most impressive things about the story, is 
you didn't just stop at making a physical change. You realized that that was only going to take you so far. And then if you really wanted to realize, you know, a lot of your dreams, you had to do more on the educational side. Um, so what do you think, and that was the part that was impressive to me, if you had to pinpoint one thing, because a lot of people, Jeff, I think it's fair to say, you know, get really good at being physically strong and active, but they maybe neglect the intellectual part. What was the one reason that you think you were able to be that introspective at an age where most people are just worried about, where am I going to go tonight? Where am I going to have fun? What am I going to do? You kind of were able to, to see far ahead and realize you had to get something more than just, you know, bulk. Um, what do you think that was? I think it was travel. We're going to Australia, the other side of the world from England at 18 years of age. It gave me a different perspective. I was out of my comfort zone. I was isolated and I was vulnerable and I was exposed to the realities of violence, of poverty, of lack of opportunity, of low pay, of deprivation. And when I returned to England, I felt that I was back in the comfort zone and I could take advantage of my hard work and get myself educated. Mm -hmm. I thought this was a real opportunity for me now, having traveled to now concentrate my energies and efforts onto becoming educated. That's great. That's, I mean, it's, uh, it's something that in retrospect, you know, it's hindsight's always twenty twenty. So when you look back at every, anybody could look back at their life and say, geez, I should have done this then. But when you're in the moment, uh, it's not always easy to do that. And you were able to, so that's really impressive. All right. So you were born and you were raised around the, uh, Burnley area of UK. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Are you a fan yes. of uh, Burnley Football Club? Of course. I mean, you know, for the size of the of the town, seventy, eighty thousand people, we're in the in the Premier League. We're competing with the yeah. Chelsea's and Man United's. It's incredible. I agree. I, I'm a huge Premier League fan. Huge. And I, one of the things I love so much about that league is that. A, you can have a team like Burnley competing with teams like Manchester City who've got all the money from, you know, the oil producers and everything like that. But at the same time, you've got these fans that they don't care what tier they're in. They're they're a fan of that team, and they're a fan of that team no matter what. And Leeds is a, another interesting story. It's like, you know, years and years ago they were really big, and then they fell, I think, to the third or fourth level, and now they're back up in the first level. And those fans never quit. And I always like watching – Burnley play. They play at uh, Turf Moor, right? Is that their field? Yes, that's right. They're very committed. Yeah, I love it. That's great. I'm a Spurs fan, by the way, just uh, for whatever that's worth. And I actually like the Spurs because they weren't one of the big money teams, but they're kind of becoming one. So I might have to, uh, you know, write Daniel Levy a letter. I don't know. Um, there are small differences between American English and, you know, uh, call it the Queen's English, British English, however you want to say. For example, we call it a flashlight, and I believe in the UK you folks call it a torch. Uh, and there's a few different examples That's right. uh, of words like that. Have you ever heard a word, um, an English word, American English, that you're like, that is the stupidest name? Why do they call it that? And uh, We say aluminium. You say aluminium. There's it sounds there. completely different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's another one. Um, and there's there's a few different pronunciations, and then there's a few actual, like um, like a trainer, right? A trainer would be shoes. Is that right? 
like sneakers? Trainers, yes. Tra- trainers would be shoes. A trainer would be a guy or a woman that trains uh, another person in the gym. Yeah. It's those, it's those small little differences that, that make it kind of interesting. Um, and another thing that's interesting about, uh, you know, British culture, if you will, is something called Cockney rhyming slang, which has always interested me, but I'm still not sure I totally understand what it is. Um, and I'm wondering if you could, for the American listeners, uh, explain to us what Cockney rhyming slang is. Yeah, well, that's obviously Cockney. That's a person from London. Um, so they'd say, I'm going up the apples and pears, stairs. So it's the rhyming slang. That's particular to London. Okay. I live in the north of England, and that we have, we have a completely, well, a different accent for sure. And some words are, are different, but the accent is you can hear with my uh, vocabulary, my accent. It will be co- co- completely different than a Cockney's. So, but that same rhyming thing where it's like, you know, we're in Barney Rubble, which means trouble. Does that happen anywhere outside of London or is that just in London, that, that, that rhyming part? Uh, we, we sometimes pick it up in the North, but it isn't central to our vocabulary, whereas it is to the Cockneys, to the East End Cockneys. I gotcha. Okay. That, that, that helps explain it. Um, again, you've been in a lot of places. We talked about how the, the, the bar scene in Australia is probably the most dangerous. Of all the places you've been, you've been to, obviously, the United States, you've been to Asia, you've been all over. Where would you say that the friendliest people um, live? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. When I got to California, I couldn't believe the friendliness of the people in California mm. because at first blush, it's very much like Perth. Beautiful beaches, good weather. In 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 Australia, it was a little bit. There was a little, not a lot, but there was some resentment to the English, who they call pommies, uh, prisoners of Mother England, because of course it, Australia was a prison colony right. where uh, prisoners were sent from England to Australia, and there were this there's this resentment had built up, not at a superficial level, sometimes at a deeper level, and there was that antagonism and a, a bit of animosity. When I got to California, couldn't believe it. Uh, there was very few women in Australia or when I was in the bars in Long Beach. Women were friendly. They offered to buy me a drink. They were fascinated by my accent. It was fantastic. I, uh, I, I had no money. I was a student then. I'd just worked in Camp America for two months. Sure. And then you got a month to travel. And I'd travel from Goochland in Richmond to Long Beach. And I came across a gym, which was... Uh, uh, Sunny Ray's gym. It was oh, a sure. light heavyweight contender, um, and he said you can, you you can train for a dollar a day, and I, he allowed me to leave my uh, baggage there, my rucksack, and I slept on Long Beach, and uh, for a dollar a day, and I went. There was a little cafe that uh, a restaurant you call them. It's called Ash Browns and Eggs, and the lady there for a dollar and as much coffee as you could drink, and she always <laughs> broke an egg. So instead of giving me two eggs, she said, I'm sorry, that's broke. I'll give you another <laughs> egg for, on top of that. So she always gave me the three eggs. Oh, Fantastic. Great. great people. Really? Yeah, really good. Oh, that's I love to hear that. That's great. Um, so back to your book for a second. One thing that another piece that really stuck out to me was when you did your thesis, I felt like the way that you came up with your the concept of your thesis was so interesting. You know, uh, it's almost like taking something that is 
you know, violence, right, as a as something that's tough to sometimes define, and then trying to put it into uh, a framework of you know systematic almost or systemic violence in working class subcultures, uh, and it's so interesting. And until I read your story, I had never even heard of anybody you know uh, looking into that as a as a concept for. For a thesis, and and I know that you got some help from a professor, um, but you know my question is, what's the most amazing fact or concept or thing that you learned while devoting your time to to such a unique and and kind of juxtaposed thoughts for your for your thesis? The violence was meaningful. It had a structure mm-hmm. and it had meaning, um, and that was important. It wasn't just random violence. It there was a hierarchy and the that look, you looked at the hierarchy to be able to understand it. So if you were working in the nightclubs, mm-hmm. it was the toughest guys that had the most power because they could do really, really what they wanted sure. unless they were uh, opposed by other violent men who were bouncers, we call them in England, or doormen. And you had to show that you were more violent or capable of being more violent than the violent men that would come into the club. When they understood or they accepted that you were in charge, you were the alpha male, if you like, then they would behave themselves because the consequences of not behaving themselves would be violence. (laughs) And violence is a powerful motivator, stimulus to affect people's behavior. But it wasn't random. It was meaningful. It had a system. And that's what I discovered. That's really interesting. And if you think about it, even something as simplistic as, you know, when I was growing up, we had chickens at the house and, you know, you hear pecking order and pecking order has been applied to, you know, jobs with humans. But, you know, the the whole idea of a pecking order is that with a group of chickens, the same thing happens, right? There's violence, but there's a structure to it. It's not random. Uh, The biggest, strongest chicken um, is always the one that nobody's picking on. um, And the other ones that are weaker, you know, kind of get put in their place and, uh, that that happens in a lot of different places. So anyways, I, I felt felt like that was a really uh, interesting and unique uh, thesis. And, you know, from the time that you wrote that thesis until now, if you take a look at the advancements of technology, right? I mean, back then there was, there was no social media. You know, there was barely an internet, barely email. Um, but the advancements in technology have been off the charts. Uh, and many things that we consider normal, you know, like the fact that I can just pick up my phone and call you in the UK, no problem. Or he could video chat, you know, 20 years ago, they would have been considered impossible. So my question is, in what way would, do you think those technological advancements would change uh, the learnings of your thesis, if at all? I'm not sure, because as you say, it was done 30 years ago. But I think with the advent of uh, video cameras, or video cameras are in the nightclubs Mm -hmm. now, I think that would have a definite effect on people's behavior. Not all the time, because a lot of of the time, violence can be spontaneous. Someone knocks a drink over, and then a guy or a woman reacts spontaneously. So it's not always measured and calculated. Yeah, that's, That's a good point. That's true. Um, while you were putting it together, uh, if I read the book correctly, um, you were still, you you were, you were still working in the nightclub scene. You were, you were still a bouncer, uh, while you were going, that's to, right. To, while you were going towards the doctor. Yeah, that's right. 
yes, I uh, I had a tape recorder in my pocket concealed where it would be running throughout the the night. So I'd start work at 10 o'clock and I think the tape would last one, one and a half to two hours. And then I'd go into the toilet to put another tape in. So all the action around me was being tape recorded. And that was interesting because mm. I also found that there was a hierarchical structure amongst the doormen themselves. Not necessarily the one that was the biggest or the toughest or the strongest, but the ones that could use uh, nuance and argument and uh, personality. And they often became the alpha males. So that was interesting. And I was able to predict people's behavior, which doorman would support. I mean, there were six doormen. Sure. Which one would support the other and which two might support the third. And there was a dynamic and interaction again amongst the doorman. And that had a hierarchical structure. That was interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. So while you were, I mean, I don't want to say you were undercover because everyone knew that you were there and, you know, going for your doctorate, there's nothing wrong with that. But when people found out afterwards that that's what you were doing, what was the reaction of your fellow bouncers when they realized that you were putting together a thesis based on this hierarchical, you know, uh, violent system uh, or, or structure that's in place with, with bouncers? Were they, were they supportive of it? Were they interested by it? Like what was, I'm just curious what, how they reacted to that. It's interesting you ask that question, Ethan, because the, I only told them when I'd written the book, they didn't know. They didn't know. They knew I was, a, they knew I was at university uh, studying for a doctorate, but they didn't know what it was about. They, wow. they hadn't a clue about uh, social psychology or sociology. But of course, when I uh, when my thesis was uh, published, well, it was only published in the university, so they didn't get to see that. Mm-hmm. But when it came out that uh, I, I lent the thesis to a colleague of mine, he never mentioned it. And uh, it was never mentioned again. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, well, they probably t- yeah. they probably didn't have much to to add to it, you know. It's like they were probably at a, it was probably at a different yes. level than they were used to thinking at, you know. Um, well, they had a different experience than I had. It was a different way of life. There you go. That's a better way to put it. Yeah. Um, do you still work out in a boxing gym now? No, I have my own gym. I uh, I I shadow box. I still lift weights. I can still lift four hundred. Well, nearly. Uh, 490 pounds from a from a deadlift, wow. uh, 420 40 pounds in a squat. So uh, I'm still strong for my age. Yeah, I would say so. You're strong for almost any age. That's great. And I think strength conditioning is so good um, as you get older because it keeps your bones strong. It keeps your tendons strong. I think it's uh, an overlooked aspect of how to maintain your your youth as you get older. Um, that's good to hear. You're right. Yes, it gives you that core strength, which is very important as you get older. Yeah. Oh, it's, it sure is. Um, so who was your favorite as a, as a boxing fan, right? I was a huge boxing fan growing up. Uh, Marvelous Marvin Hagler was my favorite. Who was your favorite boxer as a fan? As a young lad growing up in England, it was Henry Cooper. Um, okay. Henry was the uh, British and uh, European heavyweight champion who fought Muhammad Ali twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was my one of my heroes. But as I got older and I got into boxing myself, not just as a spectator, it was uh, Joe Frazier. Sure. I could relate to Joe Frazier because I'm not particularly tall and I developed a, a heavy physique. So I model myself on Joe Frazier, obviously. <laughs> not 
not to anything like his level, but he was my, uh, you know, people were supporting Ali, but it was Frazier for me. Smoking Joe, smoking Joe Frazier. It's, uh, it's one, of That's the, one. The, one of the all-time best. That's great. Um, all right. So you, uh, one of the many places that you frequent is a town in the Dominican Republic called Sasua. Uh, I, I know somebody very close to me that lives there as well. Um, what's your favorite restaurant or bar or establishment uh, in Sasua? I like the Bologna. Okay. Oh, yeah, I love that. Um, I've been there. Sure. Have you? Oh, oh yeah. sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and there's a, an Italian restaurant, and we keep changing the name, um, but it's as you're going down to the beach, um, and I forget the name, but that's probably even better. The Osteria. The Osteria is brilliant. I don't think I've been there. I've been to the, yeah, the Bologna's right on the corner there, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's the one I've been to for sure. Great town. Uh, great town. Um, all right. If you could give advice uh, to someone out there who's listening to this podcast who is at that 18 to 22 age where you're still trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? They're unsure of where they want to go. Should they go to school? Should they just start working? What advice would you give to somebody out there who's who's kind of at a, at a crossroads in life? I'd say be determined because I was told at 11 in England, there was a thing called your 11 plus examination. And if you failed your 11 plus, you know, you were then destined to live uh, a very mundane life. You went to a secondary school that was substandard and you were told that that was it for you, that you, there wouldn't be much in life because England's a very class-based society. But I was determined to break those barriers. I was determined to break that stereotype and study hard, even though very few working-class people ever got to university then. I was determined to go, and none of my family had ever been, or extended family, or any of, the, of my peers. So if you're determined and you're focused, even though the odds are against you, you can sometimes, if not inevitably overcome it. So don't be, don't be put off by stereotype, by people saying, you know, you're working class, you don't have the language, you don't have the skills, you don't have the background. Don't allow that to deter you. Be focused and put 100%, 100% effort into, no matter what it is, and, you know, it can and will come off, you will be successful. I love it. I love that advice. You know, determination, hard work, always good, and not allowing somebody else who's not you to tell you what you can and can't do. And no matter what it is that you choose to do, it doesn't really matter. You know, put your all into it. That's that's advice I can get behind. That's great. Um, all right. So there are some similarities between, uh, you know, people in Australia, in the UK, and the United States, but there are also a lot of differences so let's focus on the differences between Australians and British people. What would you say the biggest cultural difference between people from the UK and people from Australia would be? Well, Australia is such a, a, a massive country, and I spent most of my time in the west of Australia, which is Perth, and that was little more than a big country town. There were very few universities there, very very few theatres, art galleries. There wasn't the culture that uh, had been developed in England. I mean, even amongst the working classes, and I would argue that the working classes in England are denied a culture in the sense that 
my parents never went to the ballet, to theatre, right. to opera. So they were denied a culture in that sense, but it was a working class way of life that they enjoyed. Soccer, boxing, going to the pub. Uh, very very rarely did they ever go for a meal. They, they couldn't afford it. Now, in, in Australia, you don't have the subculture that we have in England. You don't have the music that we had in England, you know, the highly developed groups and bands. But in Australia, you have the wide open spaces, the beautiful beaches. Right. You know, you get a barbie and you have the, you get a barbie on the beach brace and you get a can of beer and you're right. And, you know, so it's completely different in that sense that the weather dictates behavior, dictates uh, particular ways of life. Whereas in England, in the north of England, we don't have that yeah. uh, good weather, very rare. So in that sense, it's completely different. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good perspective. Um, back to boxing for a second. So recently there have been a lot of um, people that aren't necessarily classically trained boxers. You know, maybe they're YouTubers like Logan Paul, Jake Paul, KSI from the UK. What's your opinion on these non-boxers coming into the sport? And, you know, I, I would say, and, and maybe a lot of people wouldn't agree with me, but I would say it's a little bit disrespectful to the sport of boxing, but I, but I wanted to get your opinion as somebody who's who's trained as a boxer and who's a boxing fan. What's your feeling about these YouTubers well, that are fighting everybody? I can answer that in a question. I've never even watched it. The names that you mentioned, I've never heard of them oh. because I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I have no interest in it. There you go. Well, you're better off for. I've yep. never seen them fight either, but I just they they just can't stop talking about how great they are and I would just like what I'd really like I'd like somebody who nobody knows but who's a really good boxer has been training their whole life and just never quite got that break to to shut them up because uh they're a bit much <laughs> after a while. <laughs> yeah um one thing another thing I really appreciate about the story uh, uh you know of your life that's still unfolding is your ability to enjoy yourself you know have a nice dinner go have adventures whether it's snorkeling in Australia or, you know, going to have a really nice dinner out and embracing every aspect of it, embracing the, you know, keep building friendships, keeping those friendships alive, traveling with your friends. You know, the French have a saying, they, you might be considered a, a bon vivant, you know, someone that just likes to enjoy. So with that in mind, what is your favorite type of cuisine or restaurant to go enjoy a night out with? In, in England or in Australia or in Anywhere. the Dominican or... Anyway, anyway yeah. it would be a yeah. I would. I love to have a uh, a good view. The view is everything for, to me. Interesting. I've got a good ambiance. I can see life. I can see people walking past me. If I'm in Thailand, I like to be on the street where there's a you know, activities. It's frenetic, and I'm watching life unfold. Uh, then I the food, of course, is good. But that's secondary to the ambiance and to the set and where I am in what particular country. Oh, that's really cool. I, I dig that, and that makes total sense. And that's one of the great things I love about Sasua is that there's so many places where you can just kind of park, have a meal, but you're looking at so many interesting things happening all around you. So I totally appreciate that answer. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, the yeah. Valero restaurant in, in Cabaretti is fantastic. You sit there and you can see the sea and the landscape and the sunset. That's absolutely fantastic. So funny story about that place. We were supposed to go, me and my sister were going to go with uh, a couple of my dad's friends to Cabaretta. And uh, my sister said, oh, you know what? I got my alarm set. We're all set. 
It was our very first day there, and we hadn't. Uh, and I, I look, it's more, it, it's just as much my fault as it is my sister's, but I like to say it's her fault. She didn't set her time right, so we missed our ride to Cabaretta by an hour. When, and we never got a chance to go back. So that's one thing I definitely have to do the next time I'm down there is go to Cabaret. I've heard really good things about it. Oh, for sure. I'll have to meet up. I'll treat you to a meal. Beautiful steak. I love it. I love it. Well, that's perfect timing. My next question actually is about steak. So I'm a big <laughs> fan of steak as well. What is your favorite wine to pair with a proper My favorite? To, pay, to, yeah. to have with steak? Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's a Shiraz. It's a, Australian yellowtail. Um, oh, sure. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's the best thing about wine, right? There's a lot of experts out there, but at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is do you like it? That is what makes a good wine. <laughs> exactly. I'm not a wine connoisseur, but I know what I like. That's it. That's it. All right. So you've got to make a choice now. Time to make a choice. This is probably the hardest question so far. Uh, you can only have one type of alcohol. For the rest of your life, what do you pick? Red wine. Yeah, that's that's a tough one to argue with because it goes with so many different things, right? You can have it just to relax, chill yeah. out. You can have it when you're, yes. you know, having a nice meal, but it's also really social drink, and there's a lot of depth to it. So I'm with that. Uh, speaking of alcohol, yeah. so you know, in Europe, really all of Europe. But certainly in the UK, the the perception of alcohol is a little bit different and that it's a little bit more acceptable. And in, in, in the United States, it's weird because we're like blasting these, you know, advertisements in everybody's face. And we're really advertising to a very young demographic. But then at the same time, we're, you know, arresting people for open container or arresting people for, you know, for, for being too drunk in public. And, and I and I get the sense, and I don't know because I've never been over there, but I get the sense that it isn't quite that same way in the UK. So my question for you, as somebody who's experienced both, what is the biggest cultural difference between the UK and the United States in terms of alcohol consumption? Well, again, the United States is such a huge country. I mean, you've got 50 big states there, and each one, you know, I suppose it's a different environment in uh, in Miami as it is to New York. That's true. So That's there's true. a great great deal of difference. Um, but the, the Brits, working class men and women in England, uh, just go to the bar for a beer. Um, I don't know in, in the States when I was in uh, Goochland, in uh, Richmond, in Virginia, and, and then when I, again when I was in California, it, it was slightly different. The bars in California were small they were very dark it was very cold with the air conditioning on and it was just uh i didn't realize people's mm. attitude to to alcohol we drank budweiser and schlitz and uh miller light and it was just casual whereas the brits in the working class especially in the north well before covid anyway the bar was the hub of the social life right you went to the bar on friday saturday sunday uh Fridays, the lads went out and the girls went out. And then Saturday night, they go out as couples. But this is changing. Even in the in in England, it was changing. But there, the for some reason, English working class life, mm-hmm. you go out on a Friday night to get drunk. You don't go out uh, to drink. I mean, in the, the in France, you go out to drink and have a, a nice meal. In England, you go out to get drunk. <laughs> And invariably, <laughs> young working class lads yeah. go out for violence. Oof. And that 
it unfortunately is the case in Australia as well. Hmm. So Australia and England, you drink at weekend to get drunk and fight. I didn't see that in America. The Americans are far more polite, especially to me because I was different and it wasn't as obvious in America as it was in England. So the Americans seem to deal with the alcohol differently. Interesting. Than the yeah. Brits did. Yeah, that that's an interesting perspective and I you know I'm a big fan of music and a lot of musical groups from the UK actually write about they have songs about how people go out and their intention at the beginning of the night is to to get into some type of a fight, you know, and then the whole hooligan thing with the soccer clubs and Yes. Uh, and that's a yeah. whole aspect there too. So it's funny because you know I, I don't think anybody would say the United States is a non-violent place. I just think that it's you know we're a little bit more subversive about uh, you know there are people that they go out and get drunk, but they might not have that you know direct <laughs> approach to it as they might have in the UK. Yeah. Um, all right, so yeah. we are down to our we are down to our final question. And uh, as an author, um, I'm curious what the last book that you read is. The last book that I read, yes, um, uh, a preposterous life oh. by Gary Webb. Interesting. I'm gonna write that down. And wh- who I, I don't know who Gary Webb is. I don't think um, he was. He was a football hooligan. Okay. Brought up in the Midlands in Nottingham, who went on to become not just a barrister what's called a QC, a Queen's Counselor, oh. and that is the very top echelon of a barrister. If the King's on the throne, you become a KC, a King's Counselor. Oh. So a QC is the very top, and only the very top barristers achieve that, and that's mostly middle-class educated men, white men. So for Gary Webb to have done that from a working-class background is quite incredible. That's interesting. So in some ways, there are a lot of parallels to your story. You know, somebody who was, you know, uh, blue collar working class who went into something that probably wasn't necessarily thought of as what they might do, but something that, you know, uh, is possible if you're determined and you're a hard worker. And once again, Jeff, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on uh, the podcast and answering my my 20 silly questions here. Uh, And Folks, I, I can't say it enough. Go out and find the book Boxer, Bouncer, and Now a Doctor by Jeff Slater. It's really, really interesting. It's written from a perspective, uh, first person. He was there. He lived it, um, and, and it's worth every minute. Jeff, I really appreciate you being part of the show, and uh, hope you have a great night over there. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Take care.